Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, you have spoken through your word. We are people in need of hearing from you. We ask now that your word would come alive to us, that our hearts would be uh, changed, our thinking would be changed, that we would be more ready to be your followers and look like your children. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, it is great to be back. It was, it's kind of unexpected, as, as uh, Taylor hinted at. I was here at the end of last month, but several of the people who are being baptized today were not well and couldn't be here. And rather than waiting indefinitely for that to take place, I realized I had a free Sunday today. I'm just coming back from a marriage retreat that my wife and I were helping to lead. Uh, so, uh, I've, and that was up in Georgia, so I'm still trying to figure out where I am. But I'm glad to be back. Glad to be with all of you. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke 9. Uh, we're going to start in the 53rd verse. So I know that takes a minute. And you know, if it's a phone, you've got to push the right buttons and all of that. Luke 9. One of the things that fascinates me as I'm watching movies or TV is the ability of a makeup artist to take someone and make them look like someone else. Uh, a good example recently is there have been several films uh, and, uh, about Winston Churchill and taking actors who looked very little like Winston Churchill and somehow turning them into Winston Churchill. If I had to pick one person I wouldn't want to look like, it would probably be Winston Churchill. <laughs> And you can think of a whole bunch of them, but it's a, remarkable the transformation that takes place. I'm, I want to use the image of a makeup artist, somebody who has the ability to change someone's appearance to look more like someone else. And, and I want us to realize that in a deep sense, what is going on in us, if we're followers of Jesus, is that we are being made to look like Jesus, not outwardly but in terms of character, in terms of understanding, in terms of perspective, in terms of relationship with the Father. We could say in a way that Jesus himself is the makeup artist, taking us and changing us to be like him. But in order to be a makeup artist, Jesus is also a shake-up artist. He does that a lot. It was for Fumi, but he's not here. What can I say? <laughs> He is constantly shaking things up in our lives. In order to get our attention, in order to capture our imagination, and in order to transform us to be like him. And what we're seeing in the Gospel reading in Luke 9 is four sets of disciples that Jesus is shaking up. Four sets of marks of what it means to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus is to not be someone who takes vengeance. We'll see all of these. To be like Jesus is someone who's willing to have a loss of comfort. To be like Jesus is to be willing to be misunderstood by the culture. And to be like Jesus is to let go of control over our own schedule, our own time. We're going to see all those quickly this morning. I want you to be thinking about them. There's too much in this sermon for you to take it all home. 
So I want you to be listening to one thing for you out of what I'm saying, one thought that you need to hold on to. I don't know what it is. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit. We'll show you what it is. First of all, Jesus is in the area of Samaritan, uh, Samaria, but the people there, it says in 953, do not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Why does that matter? Because the Samaritans hated the Jews generally and vice versa. The favor was returned. And the fact that he's going to the center of the, the capital city of the Jews is enough to make those in Samaria prejudiced against him. They don't receive him. They don't welcome him. And then it says, when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now you think about that. What's going on there? Well, there's an Old Testament story behind it. There's a moment at which the king of Samaria sends troops to capture Elijah, uh, who's done nothing wrong. He's just spoken the truth that the king doesn't want to hear. And... Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and they're destroyed. It actually happens twice. The third time a group is sent, the captain says, please, don't let that happen to us. Please have mercy on us. And instead, Elijah follows them back and addresses the king uh, directly. So they're thinking, "Here's this is like that. This is a situation like that. You know, they're dissing Jesus. That's like the way in which they were against Elijah. So it's not like they were crazy, they were actually trying to live out what they understood of the scriptures. But look what it says in verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, we don't know exactly what he said, but I'll give you a hint. If back in Luke 6, he says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You're going to look like me. You're going to look like that. No vengeance for Christians. Is there someone in your life whom you've given yourself permission to treat like an enemy? We saw a list of the parts of our sinful nature in Galatians, and one of the word there is a word. One of the words there is a word we rarely use. It's enmity. What does that mean? It means having an enemy and hating them. And, and Paul identifies that as part of our old nature, our sinful nature, enmity. Enmity. If you're in the midst of enmity, ask the Lord to help change your attitudes and your behavior. The next thing we notice as another disciple comes up is that Jesus wants us to let go of the concept of comfort. His disciple says, I will follow you wherever you go. And essentially, what Jesus is responding to is the wherever. He's saying to him, wherever, wherever? Well, let me tell you what it's going to be like. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, verse 58. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The wherever's are going to be tough, and they're not going to be comfortable. I like these words from John Piper. It's the, from his introduction of a book he wrote about William Wilberforce, who helped end slavery, and John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, it's a, quite a remarkable 
book, The Roots of Endurance, but he said this at the beginning. Piper said this. He said, there's a mindset in the prosperous West that we deserve pain-free, trouble-free existence. When life deals us the opposite, we have a right not only to blame somebody or some system and to feel sorry for ourselves, but also to devote most of our time to coping so that we have no time or energy left over for serving others. Piper goes on to say, this mindset gives a trajectory to life that is almost universal, namely away from stress and toward comfort and safety and relief. He goes on to say, then churches grow up in this mindset, and it never occurs to anyone such a community of believers that choosing discomfort, stress, and danger might be the right thing, even the normal biblical thing, to do. I have found myself in conversation with Christians for whom it is simply a given that you do not put yourself or your family at risk. This commitment to safety and comfort is an unquestioned absolute. That's worth looking at. Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way it's going to be for disciples. It struck me as we're doing the baptisms for the Kogan family. If you want an example of somebody who is not aiming toward comfort in their lives, it would be this family. I heard the story of them rescuing orphans from Ukraine, bringing them primarily into Poland, but elsewhere. Do you think it was difficult? Oh, yes. Do you think it was dangerous? By all means. They did not have comfort as a high goal for their family, and neither should we. Jesus doesn't want us to. So no vengeance for Christians, no seeking of comfort. Third thing to note is that we are going to be misunderstood by our culture. Now, it's a little hard to pick this up. Let me explain it a little bit. Somebody says to Jesus, first let me go bury my father. And your first reaction is, well, that's a reasonable request. Until you know the culture. The culture in the time of Jesus is that someone would die, you would lay their body in a tomb, and you would literally let it rot. And then after time, usually a year or so, once it was, all the flesh had rotted away, all that is left is the bones. When it says, bury my father, he's saying, I'm waiting to bury the bones. In other words, this could be some amount of time. It would be a normal thing for children to do. But he might have been sticking around for as much as a year. So what's Jesus' response to that? It looks cruel, but the fact is that Jesus doesn't have much time left. It says he's already set his face toward Jerusalem. If you want to be my follower, you've got to get on board now. So he says, let the dead bury the dead. What's the implication? The implication is that that cultural value of how to do burial, which incidentally is not a biblical command, it's just the way their culture does it, that cultural value does not necessarily bring life. Not all cultural values bring life. So he's basically saying you have a choice of being wrapped up in your culture dead among the dead, or walking with me alive among the alive. Now, it's kind of an interesting moment in our history. What with the reversal of Roe versus Wade, and I'm not going to say much about it, except to say that there is good news that it's no longer a national right to abort a child. 
But at the heart of the outcry is a deeper problem. It's a problem of autonomy, the idea that my rights as an individual trump everyone else's rights, including children. And it's a major value in our culture that my rights come first. We are radical individualists. There's a new book out called Strange New World by Carl Truman. And in the introduction, a man named Ryan Anderson says this, talking about our view of autonomy, our view of individualism. He says, this modern self, then, is not accountable to the theologians who preach on how to conform oneself to God, but to the therapists who counsel how to be true to oneself. Do you hear that? Let me say it again. This modern self, this is the self we're surrounded with, this is major values in the culture, is not accountable to theologians who preach on how to conform oneself to God, but to the therapists who counsel how to be true to oneself. That's a radical clash of understanding. Now, one court decision will not end that view of autonomy. That view of all our individual rights our individual freedoms, our unencumbered self, as someone called it. But it is an opportunity for us as Christians to demonstrate love concretely to women who have been misguided or desperate enough to consider abortion. This is an opportunity for the gospel. We don't come down as Pharisees, but as we come in as people with the love of Christ. So no vengeance. Discomfort as a disciple, we're going to be living contrary to the culture. And finally, look at the last disciple, verse 61. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what's the issue here? I thought I was going to coin a word, and then I looked it up, and it's been around since 1674. That was really disappointing. The issue here is nowness. What are you doing now? What are you doing in this moment? And the problem here is that opening phrase when he says, let me first. In other words, let me de define what's going to happen now. And Jesus sees a deeper issue. Who rules your calendar? Because life, we talk about giving our lives, but lives are measured in time. That's how you measure a life. Will we let Jesus control our time and hence our life? The major problem here is the let me first. Let me set the calendar. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died after his efforts to uh, end Hitler's reign, a, a, a pastor in Germany said this as he considered this passage. He said, this last disciple makes himself available but retains the right to set his own conditions. I like this line. He said, it is obvious that at that moment, discipleship stops being discipleship. Discipleship stops being discipleship 
when we set the order of priorities. Let me give you one practice that's been helpful to me. There's a wonderful book, I recommend it, called The Ten Second Rule by a man named Claire de Graff. Claire, C-L-A-R-E, not a name we're usually familiar with for a man, but with that spelling. The 10 second rule is simple. When Jesus nudges you to do something by the Holy Spirit, you have roughly 10 seconds to decide to do it. And the graph says this, here was God himself and Jesus Christ inviting all who would enter his kingdom to abandon comfortable Christianity, to abandon the common sense I prize so highly, the very thing that governed my life, leave it at the door, he was saying. I'll meet you at the foot of the cross where your old life will end and the new life I'll give you will begin. I'll issue new instructions from there. Trust me and come follow me. And then he goes on to say, when you're reasonably certain Jesus is asking you to do something, do it immediately, hence the 10 seconds. Waiting just gives you a chance to overthink these impressions from God, giving doubt and fear an immediate opportunity to ask their questions and whisper their advice. Now, not all interruptions are important, but I will say that most important opportunities for the gospel come in as interruptions. And he tells some wonderful stories. I won't, I'll just outline quickly uh, a, a woman who has got two kids in a uh, shopping cart checking out. She's looking around because the third one is wandering the store and she doesn't see him. She gets hands in her card to pay for the food, and the card is declined. Starts digging in the purse, looking for a way to uh, pay for what's already gone through the scanner. And the woman behind her notices all of this, hands the uh, checkout person her credit card, says, I'll take care of this. And when the mother begins to object, she says, no, I'll take care of this. I'll watch the children. You go get the other kid. And at the end of it, the young woman who was in her 30s, turns to the older one and says, why did you offer to pay for my groceries? And I love this response. She said, I'm a Christian. As I stood behind you, I sensed that God was telling me to pay for your groceries, so I did. Simple as that. Since everything I have belongs to God anyway, he paid your bill, not me. Just thank him if you like. I hope you have a great day. And with one last smile, the woman turned and left. The 10-second rule. One of the major problems I have in my life is I have in my mindset that I can obey, but I don't have to do it right now. I can wait to obey. It happens to me every time I have a time alone with the Lord. I get distracted by something else, and if I follow down that rabbit trail, then by the time I'd actually open the scriptures to be in prayer, something else has come up and the time is gone. Let me first. So four marks of discipleship. No vengeance, no enmity, and no enemies. To face into discomfort, pain, and stress. To be willing to resist non-biblical cultural values wherever they come up. With grace, but with clarity and obey now when possible.
This will lead to a continual death to self and a transformation to be more like Jesus, to be transformed into his image. Look at, at well, listening to Galatians 5, let me just say this quickly from the passage you heard before. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, no law. That's what it looks like to be like Jesus. But he goes on to say, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You can't get to peace, love, joy, patience without a crucifixion of the other stuff that has to go. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. That's what Paul is saying here. One final thought. Think of Jesus on the cross. Jesus following the Father. Jesus, not only our Savior, not only paying for our uh, sins, but also our example. There's no vengeance on the cross. What does he say? Father, forgive them. There's nothing comfortable about the cross. Excruciating pain, but on top of the physical pain is the emotional and spiritual pain of experiencing being cut off from the Father because our sins are on him, cut off from the Father. Was he contrary to culture? Absolutely. They were expecting a Messiah who was going to come and get rid of their enemies, not a Messiah who'd be crucified telling his followers to love their enemies. And Jesus did not put off the cross. Beginning of the gospel passage in Luke, he set his face toward Jerusalem. The time is coming. He didn't say later or maybe never. He marched on a death march for our sake, ending at the cross. We're following that Lord. We're becoming like that Jesus if we're following him. All out of love. He did all those things out of love for us. We will not be perfect disciples, but we are disciples who are being perfected. We can know, go, go forward knowing that Jesus loves us. Even when we were enemies, he loved us. And that he's forgiven us. And by the Spirit, he is making us into his image. That's a word for all of us today, certainly a word for those being baptized and confirmed. A call to be like Jesus, because out of love for us, Jesus knows that our real self is obvious the more we look like him. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for those being baptized and confirmed and for the work that you have already done in their lives and the work you will continue to do. And we come before you recognizing that to be your disciple is not going to be easy, but we're going to look like you. The work begun here and finished in eternity. And we bless you for that mercy that you would take us and make us your followers out of love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.